Welcome back to Roshcast episode 12. Let's start off with an Envenomation related review from prior episodes. We don't often see these in practice, but they are frequently seen on emergency medicine board exams. I'll get us started. What are the immediate treatment recommendations for envenomation by a Portuguese man of war? For a Portuguese man of war envenomation, you should immediately remove the nematocyst and then wash the affected body part with a saltwater wash. All right. A patient presents after being bitten by a black widow spider, and remember that's the one with the red hourglass on their abdomen. How would you expect the bite to look? A black widow spider bite? That would be a local papule with a halo, and severe symptoms could include muscle fasciculations and a peritonitic abdomen. And in comparison, how would a bite from a brown recluse spider present? Brown recluse spiders cause a papule that blisters and eventually can necrose. Severe cases here can present with renal failure, pulmonary edema, and shock. And one last one here. What are the symptoms of a pit viper snake envenomation? Pit viper snake bites cause local swelling and oozing from the wound. Severe cases can lead to DIC-like coagulopathy and hemorrhagic bullet. Strong work. Next week, we're going to cover some cardiology questions we've reviewed in the past. But for now, let's move on to the new material. A four-year-old boy is brought to the emergency department after drowning. Bystanders noted that the child was under the water for less than a minute. After quickly being pulled up from the bottom of the pool, he coughed and vomited once. He arrived to the ED awake and alert with a GCS of 15. On exam, he is afebrile with a heart rate of 105, a respiratory rate of 20, with a SAT of 96% on room air. His lungs are clear. What is the next step in management? Is it A, admitted telemetry unit for 24 hours of observation, B, discharge home, C, observe for four to six hours and discharge home if there is no change in his status, or D, positive pressure ventilation? Well, since this kid has a GCS of more than 13 and an O2 saturation of greater than 95% on room air, he's at low risk for complications. He does require an observation period, so I'm going to go with choice C here. Exactly. In a stable asymptomatic patient, labs and imaging aren't usually necessary. Admission is only indicated in those who develop dyspnea, fever, abnormal lung sounds, or who have an oxygen requirement during their ED visit. And in those with severe symptoms like bilateral RALS, an ICU admission and mechanical ventilation might be needed. Patients with diffuse RALS and a normal blood pressure have a mortality cited at about 4 to 5%. In a severe pulmonary edema or shocker scene, the mortality jumps to about 20%. And although concomitant injuries are rare, don't forget to elicit any history of falling or diving into shallow waters, which may prompt a hunt for head and C-spine injuries. Not surprisingly, about 40% of adolescent and adult drownings involve alcohol. An incredibly thorough primary and secondary survey are always necessary, but are especially important in intoxicated patients. Let's move to the geriatric ER for the next question. In comparison to younger patients, elderly patients with abdominal pain are more likely to present with which of the following? Is it A, need for an emergent surgical procedure, B, an elevated white count, C, fever, or D, peritoneal signs? The answer here is definitely choice A. Older patients are more likely than younger patients to need an emergent surgical procedure. Complicating things further, older patients typically have an atypical presentation of the common intra-abdominal pathologies with a more rapid progression of the disease than their younger counterparts. Almost 50% of elderly patients with abdominal pain get admitted. Roughly 33% end up requiring surgery, and the all-comer mortality is about 10%. This should strike a healthy dose of fear when taking care of elderly patients with abdominal pain. Definitely. 10% mortality is rather high. Let's stay in the abdomen for the next question. Which of the following conditions is the second most likely cause of small bowel obstructions after postoperative adhesions? Is it A, adenocarcinoma, B, incarcerated hernia, C, intussusception, or D, volvulus? The second most common cause of SPO, 
that has to be malignancy. So choice A, adenocarcinoma would be correct here. Cancer accounts for approximately 20% of small bowel obstructions. Exactly. We actually touched upon this in our first episode. After adhesions and malignancy, incarcerated hernias, that's choice B, account for just 10% of SBOs. Choice D, volvulus, that's actually the second most common cause of large bowel obstructions, with cancer being the most common cause. Don't forget to check out the image in the show notes at roshreview.com forward slash blog. Let's do a quick basic physiology question next. How do you calculate the mean arterial pressure? Is it A, one-third the diastolic plus two-thirds the systolic blood pressure, or B, the diastolic plus one-third the difference between the systolic and diastolic pressures, C, the diastolic blood pressure plus two-thirds the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressures, or D, the systolic plus one-third the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressures. Mean arterial pressure, or MAP, is defined as cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance plus central venous pressure. But these variables aren't easily measured, so we tend to approximate these by two-thirds of the diastolic plus one-third of the systolic, which is choice B. Remember that we spend about twice as long in diastole than we do in systole in every cardiac cycle. I don't have a lot more to add here, but remember that the MAP is essentially a determination of tissue perfusion. It normally ranges from 70 to an upper limit of about 100 in adults, with a MAP of 60 needed to adequately perfuse the coronary arteries, brain, and kidneys. Pretty straightforward, but important. Let's move on to a trauma question. A 23-year-old man presents with chest pain after a motor vehicle accident. The patient's chest struck the steering wheel. He has no other complaints or injuries. Chest x-ray is unremarkable. EKG shows sinus tachycardia with anterior ST depressions. A troponin is sent and is positive. What management is indicated? Is it A, to activate the cardiac catheterization lab? B, discharge him home with cardiology follow-up? C, echocardiogram? Or D, pericardiocentesis? So this guy has blunt chest trauma and a positive troponin. That has to be a myocardial contusion, which I know warrants an echocardiogram. So I'm going to go with choice C. Exactly. Typically, these patients will also have other thoracic lesions, such as pulmonary contusions, pneumothoraces, or hemothoraces. The most common finding is actually tachycardia, which occurs in up to 70% of patients. Dysrhythmias and ST changes can also be seen. And of course, the most feared complication would be a delayed rupture, which would typically occur after resorption of the hematoma. This is a really rare complication, as most of these heal spontaneously on their own. Let me quickly run through the other answer choices here. Choice A is wrong because this young male with no risk factors is unlikely to be having an acute coronary event. Although many patients may be discharged with appropriate follow-up, the presence of EKG changes in elevated troponins prompts a further workup with echo, so choice B is wrong. And lastly, choice D, pericardiocentesis, that may be necessary in the setting of a large effusion causing tamponade, but typically only a small effusion will develop after most myocardial contusions. Nice. Let's move on to the next question, which, judging by the percentage of Roche review users who answered it correctly, is likely the most difficult of this set. Which of the following mechanisms of hypoxemia is associated with failure of arterial oxygenation levels to increase in response to supplemental oxygen? Is it A, diffusion impairment, B, hypoventilation, C, right-to-left shunt, or D, VQ mismatch? The correct answer here would be choice C, right-to-left shunt. All of the other conditions described would show rapid improvement in arterial oxygen levels with supplemental oxygen. And can you name some of the most common conditions that would cause this right-to-left shunt? Well, there are a few, but the main ones we encounter in the ED are ARDS, consolidation from pneumonia, pulmonary atelectasis, and ASD, or AVMs. Great, and since we have a few more minutes left in this episode, let's discuss the other mechanisms of hypoxemia listed here. Diffusion impairment, choice A, occurs as a result of interstitial disease. 
This would improve with supplemental O2 and would have a large AA gradient. Choice B, hypoventilation, occurs in the setting of drug overdoses, CNS lesions, and neuromuscular junction disorders. Hypoventilation should improve with supplemental oxygen, but that would have a normal AA gradient. The last answer here, choice D, of EQ mismatch, that is seen most commonly in patients with PEs, COPD, pneumonia, or even asthma. Just like diffusion impairment, these patients would improve with supplemental O2 and would have an increased AA gradient. And there's one last condition we should discuss here. That would be the case of low inspired oxygen, which is a less common cause of hypoxemia. Low inspired oxygen can occur in an enclosed space with fires or at high altitudes. You'd expect a normal AA gradient and a hypoxemia that improves with supplemental oxygen. Nice. Let's close out with a quick ID question. A 19-year-old man presents with an ulcer on his penis. He denies pain, tenderness, and itching of the ulcer. He also denies penile discharge and dysuria. Genital examination reveals a clean-based, sharply defined, circular ulcer on the shaft of the penis. There are no other rashes or lymphadenopathy. Which of the following organisms is most likely to cause his symptoms? Is it A. Borrelia burgdorferi, B. Haemophilus ducreyi, C. Plasmodium falciparum, or D. Treponema pallidum? Painless penile lesion. They're talking about syphilis here. Here's a mnemonic that I use to remember the difference. Syphilis is painless, and with H. ducreyi, you do cry. Choice A, Borrelia burgdorferi, that causes Lyme disease, and choice C, Plasmodium falciparum, that's the protozoa that causes malaria. Neither of these are related to the painless lesion this 19-year-old is experiencing. Great mnemonic. And even though the question didn't ask about it, let's go over the stages of syphilis. Primary syphilis develops as a papule, which then ulcerates into a clean-based, sharply defined, circular ulcer called a chancre. The chancre is painless and usually solitary and occurs at the site of inoculation after an incubation time of 9 to 90 days. It usually resolves in 2 to 6 weeks. 5 to 8 weeks after the resolution of the chancre, secondary syphilis develops. This is characterized by a macular papular copper-colored rash. This stage is often accompanied by constitutional symptoms such as fever, malaise, and arthralgias. Secondary syphilis usually resolves spontaneously in one to two months. Latent syphilis is an asymptomatic period between secondary and tertiary syphilis. Tertiary syphilis occurs up to 20 years after inoculation and is characterized by the development of granulomatous lesions called gumas. Before we finish this episode with a rapid review, let's go over a few of the sexually transmitted penile lesions that are often confused. They're most easily remembered in two categories, painful and painless. In the painful category, there are two lesions to know. You have chancroid, which is caused by H. ducreyi, as we mentioned previously. This usually presents as multiple painful papules that ulcer along with an inguinal bubo, which is simply a swollen inguinal lymph node. The second lesion here is genital herpes, caused by HSV. These lesions are usually shallow, tender, painful lesions. Right, and in the painless category, there are three diseases to remember. The first is primary syphilis, which causes the painless chancre, as we just discussed. The second is granuloma inguinale, caused by Klebsiella granulomatis. These lesions are beefy red ulcers with a painless papule. The last painless lesion is lymphogranuloma venereum, caused by chlamydia trichomatis. These lesions are small, shallow, painless ulcers or vesicles with tender inguinal or femoral lymphadenopathy. All right, that's it for the new material. Let's close out with a rapid review. In pediatric drownings with a normal lung exam and baseline mental status, a four to six hour observation period is sufficient prior to discharge. Any oxygen requirement or pulmonary findings on auscultation should prompt an admission. Elderly patients with abdominal pain are more likely than younger patients to require an emergent surgical procedure. They have a markedly high admission rate and approximately 10% mortality. The two most common causes of SBOs are adhesions followed by cancer. 
Large bowel obstructions are caused primarily by cancer and second most commonly by volvulus. Mean arterial pressure is defined as cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance plus central venous pressure. We approximate it by two-thirds of the diastolic blood pressure plus one-third of the systolic. Myocardial contusions are a sequelae of blunt chest trauma. The most common EKG finding is sinus tachycardia. These patients require an echo. The most serious complication is delayed rupture, although the most common course is spontaneous resorption and resolution of the symptoms. The hypoxemia of right-to-left shunt would not improve substantially with supplemental oxygen and the AA gradient would be increased. Diffusion impairment occurs as a result of interstitial disease, which improves with supplemental O2 and has a large AA gradient. Hypoventilation occurs during drug overdoses, CNS lesions, and neuromuscular junction disorders. Hypoxemia in this setting improves with supplemental oxygen and the AA gradient is usually normal. In VQ mismatch, hypoxemia improves with supplemental O2 and there is an increased AA gradient. There are three painless penile lesions to remember. The small shallow ulcer of LGV caused by chlamydia, the beefy red ulcer and painless papula of granuloma inguinale caused by Klebsiella, and lastly the painless chancre of syphilis caused by treponema pallidum. The two painful penile lesions are the multiple painful papules that ulcerate of chancroid caused by H. ducryi, and the shallow tender painful lesions of genital herpes caused by HSV. Well, that wraps up episode 12. See you guys next week for episode 13. 